The Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the standard in the rare coin grading business. It bears repeating that PCGS has reopened its operations in the Orange County office where expert graders are working around the clock in a safe environment to evaluate, authenticate, and grade your rare coins and other numismatic items, including paper money. To see how PCGS is protecting themselves and your collectible investment in this unprecedented time, go to www.pcgs.com. Today in the Coin Week podcast, Daniel Frank Sedwick joins me to talk about today's treasure auction number 27. This treasure auction has ingots, cobs, and gold and silver, Latin American coins, and paper money, and has got a little bit of something for everybody who wants to collect unique, rare, and even underappreciated numismatic treasure. We'll be talking about some of the key lots that I found interesting next on the Coin Week podcast. Hi, Dan. Thank you for joining me again on the Coin Week podcast. I'm excited to talk about treasure coins and South American coins, two great topics with passionate devotees and plenty of upside. Of course, you're preparing to hold your 27th treasure auction today. And actually, uh, it's going to take place in a few hours after we post this. So uh, I know you're busy, but how are you doing? Oh, just great. Um, everything has, has been moving on rather smoothly for this auction. And as you said, we have some uh, very nice material. And uh, most of the stuff we have is always pretty exciting anyway. I don't know anybody who doesn't find cobs exciting. These primitive pieces of numismatic treasure have an enduring legacy as the continent's first silver and gold currency. I see you have a number of pieces of high quality as usual in the sale. Uh, before we talk about specific examples, how is the Cobb market doing at the present time? Well, in terms of Cobbs, you know, you've really got uh, two different markets, I would say. You know, you've got the uh, the gold Cobb market and the silver Cobb market. And, uh, you know, they are two different uh, levels of, of commitment financially and um, they kind of uh, have other factors that, that affect them, uh, namely grading. And uh, when you add in the shipwreck aspect, it's, it's a, a multiplier in both cases, but more so in the gold because uh, the gold coins from shipwrecks are actually better than the coins that aren't from shipwrecks condition-wise. And uh, for silver, it's the opposite. The silver is affected. Um, we have uh, in this particular auction in terms of gold cobs, uh, we have uh, one that, that I find uh, very interesting and uh, attractive, not only because of, of how it looks and what it is, but uh, it's modern history as well. Um, it is a Lima, Peru, Cabe de Scudos, dated 1703, uh, Sayer H. And um, it's part of a uh, collection that we have in this auction, or at least the first part of a collection of Lima, Gold, Cabe de Scudos, uh, and smaller denominations as well. Uh, from the 1715 fleet specifically. And uh, what's most interesting to me about this coin, uh, apart from the fact that it's a, a rare date, it's, in fact, it's missing in the uh, collection of the state of Florida, uh, which in theory should have the best collection of all because 
uh, they have first pick and 25% of all the fines that come off the 1715 uh, fleet on the east coast of Florida. Um, so that's already significant there that this, this state is missing in, in their collection. Um, but um, what I think is, is neat about it is that uh, this came from what we call the 2003 Tampa sale. Uh, it was an auction that was put on by the government. I believe it was the um, uh, it was um, Customs and Border Protection or something like that, or Treasury Department. It was some official um, uh, government auction of seized assets specifically seized from a, uh, a convicted drug dealer who had gotten involved in, uh, in somehow in 1715 fleet coins. And uh, what ended up happening was this was effectively in 2003 the uh, largest offering of uh, gold cobs from the 1715 fleet since the, the classic auctions that had taken place back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so it was pretty interesting. And uh, at the time, uh, they uh, hired me to um, not only appraise all the coins for auction in 2003, but I also made certificates for all of the coins. So I got pretty familiar with the coins, and um, I believe what happened at the time was um, the, my client either bought this coin directly from the sale or uh, maybe it was brokered through me, but uh, um, I knew that uh, he had gotten it there and was uh, very happy when uh, he finally decided to sell his collection and, and place it in my own auction. Uh, so that has an estimate of twenty thousand dollars and up, and uh, we we expect it to go, uh, you know, well above the twenty thousand. So that's uh, probably the most exciting uh, in the uh, cobs that we have, and uh, like I say, there's plenty of silver cobs as well. But uh, that's that was one uh, one coin I think we should we should have highlighted pretty well. Speaking of shipwreck salvaged material. Recently, a federal judge in Virginia cleared the way for a private firm to salvage the Titanic's telegraph machine. I wonder, though, if their license was expanded just a little bit, uh, whether they might find interesting coins at the bottom of the ocean floor and uh, what the reaction of the market might be if some of the passengers' Titanic treasure was ever bought to market. Well, the Titanic is always an interesting um, uh, topic because it's not a treasure wreck in the sense of having uh, a cargo on board that would have any significant value. Um, the value there, of course, is in the shipwreck itself and the, the fame of, of the Titanic. And it's been known already that uh, uh, items have been sold from the ship, items that were recovered, um, I believe, uh, years ago. <laughs> I even responded to an ad and bought a little piece of coal from the Titanic for my sister that, that she still has. Um, so I would imagine that anything they find uh, when they look for the telegraph machine, anything they find will be uh, a valuable, saleable item if they have the permission to do that. Uh, but whether or not they find coins, I think that's uh, somewhat irrelevant in, in the shipwreck collectible market. Um, you know, it may have an impact in the U.S., uh, shipwreck coin market um, that could very well be but that's pretty unpredictable we've seen mixed results over the years with the various u.s shipwrecks uh, for example uh, if you see something from the ss republic or the ss central america that were very heavily promoted uh, sure those those go for a premium but let me ask you about something like uh, yankee blade or or one of the more obscure u.s shipwrecks out there there's not enough material to be promoted. So, uh, you know, those coins don't get promoted as being from shipwrecks quite so much, and, and uh, they don't 
quite get the, the kind of value level, or at least not a predictable value level. Um, so uh, my short answer is simply that something like that probably would sell uh, as a shipwreck artifact rather than as a valuable numismatic artifact. Of course, yeah, you're right. I think we would only be talking about small-scale stuff. Uh, this would be early 20th century European coins, probably most of it's silver, to be honest. But, you know, maybe there's some gold there, maybe some 19th century uh, pieces. Certainly no great rarities, I'd expect. So, uh, getting back to your sale. I see that several interesting rare Colombian pieces are going to be available. It seems that this segment of the market has really come alive in recent years. And uh, Colombia, having such a rich history numismatically, uh, I, I couldn't think of a country's numismatic story more deserving to have a moment as it's having right now. One coin you have is a Colombian Pilar 8 Reales of Charles III, the Restrepo plate coin. And it's a gem and probably the finest extent at this time. Yes, that's actually a, a very famous um occurrence on this, uh, the Pillar 8 Reales uh, from Colombia. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. Before I, you know, talk specifically about that coin, uh, Colombia has been coming, uh, becoming more and more uh, known numismatically. Um, but, you know, it, it's always had a big following in Colombia itself. That's just one of those countries that has had, always had a very good collectorship for their own material um, most of my best Colombian customers, for example, in, in the sense that they collect Colombian coins, most of them are actually in Colombia, whereas, uh, you know, you take some of the other uh, Latin American countries and, and some of the best collectors, some of the top collectors are probably in the United States. So it, it's had a long tradition. And if you look at the history behind Colombia in general, you'll see that it's it's very rich in variety uh, just politically, you know, it, it went through, I think, five different governments and uh, lots of design changes on the coins as a result. Uh, you know, they changed the, the series of denominations. Um, you know, they started out in a, in a Spanish system and then ended up in a decimal system. And uh, just a lot of things, a lot of factors combined to make Colombian coins uh, a very rich and exciting field to collect. Uh, very challenging, of course, too. But uh, for the most part, uh, things are available if, if you were to collect Colombian coins by type. Um, we'll get into it later, but there are a couple of types here where the, they were not easy at all to get, and that's what makes them very, uh, very difficult and, and attractive now. Uh, that's sort of the case with this pillar dollar, this pillar 8 reality stated 1770, because any pillar uh, material, um, and that refers to the design, the pillars and, and waves uh, on, on one side of the coin with the globes, um, any any coin from that series from Colombia is very, very rare. Uh, they made, I think, only two or three denominations the uh, uh, and only a few dates, just a very small handful of dates. Uh, I believe in the Charles III type, which uh, would cover 1770, there, there are a couple of dates, but uh, this date in particular possibly was only made for one particular occasion because all the known examples came from one single hoard uh, that was found when they were um, digging up, uh, you know, making an excavation in the city of, of Bogota. And uh, the funny thing is it's, it's really just a few steps from the mint. It's just a couple blocks from the mint. So when you talk about something that's mint fresh and something that is, uh, from this long ago, but from 1770, it's mint fresh. 
that is exactly what this is. This coin did not uh, have any kind of uh, – this coin and the others in the hoard did not have any interaction with anything on the way. They just went right into the ground uh, in a protected uh, capsule, it was a, and it was indeed a ca- time capsule until modern times. Um, but um, that said, uh, there are some other examples out there on the market. Uh, in fact, this is, I believe, the third example that uh, we will have sold. Uh, but it is also the finest. Uh, the others, um, because it is, uh, you know, like I say, these are all mint fresh coins. They get generally pretty good high state, uh, mint state grades. Uh, but this is the first and only one to get an MS65 at either PCGS or NGC. Uh, and it's also the uh, plate coin in, in the main reference on Colombian coins. So a lot going for this coin. Uh, but most of all is if you see it, if you could see a, a picture of it or even better, um, you know, a video, short video that shows the luster of this piece. You, you just, you won't believe that it was, it was made that long ago. It, it is that pristine and, and that beautiful. And for me, it's, it's got added appeal because I've, I've been to the site where it was found. I've seen, uh, the whole thing and, and, uh, um, I can, I can relate the story and, and, uh, um, I'll just be very excited to, to see, you know, where this, which new home, uh, receives this coin because it, it certainly will be the uh, uh, the trophy in that person's collection, no doubt about it. I'm going to skip ahead, like way ahead chronologically here. Uh, one coin that you have that blows my mind uh, for two reasons. Uh, one is that your pre-sale estimate, in my opinion, is unbelievably low. Uh, and that's uh, lot 874, uh, the 50 centavos with the rare Coca-Cola ha- uh, bust. Here's where history and numismatics converge for me. You have a country facing great upheaval uh, with the U.S. uh, playing a big role in that. And you have a coin that comes out with a very unpopular effigy of the wife of an unpopular president. Uh, For sure, it is an opportunity. And and, uh, I'll answer first to the the estimate on this piece. And it's just one of those things that, that happens during the auction process. Um, when you get a consignment, you, you start out with uh, uh, some idea of value and um, because you have to start somewhere. And it's only after you do extensive research that uh, you see that that very rare coin uh, ends up being, you know, nearly unique or having a much better story than you ever thought. And uh, that was definitely the case here. I mean, we knew that this was a, a rare piece, but uh, as as we got into the writing and as the weeks went by and we we did more and more research, we realized it was uh, um, it was a, a much better coin. But at the same time, uh, why change the estimate? I mean, this will sell for for what it's worth, and um, I, I think that uh, certainly it's an opportunity. Uh, but uh, you know, if uh, at least two people see it as an opportunity, it'll it'll very quickly become an expensive coin. And it very well should, and um, the main reason is because uh, even though uh, the Coca-Cola type is in itself um, a pretty rare type, uh, this is the extremely rare second date of that type. And um, I'll go on a tangent just briefly to mention that I used to be a collector of these coins when I was a kid. That's that's where I got started in, in numismatics. My father was a, a known collector of Colombian Republic gold coins, and uh, he got me interested in the half dollars of Colombia, uh, just because it was a nice thing for a, a 10, 11, 12 year old to collect. It was most of the coins were in the, uh, you know, 50 to 25 to 50 dollar range. So it was something I could afford. It was also something where 
uh, he could get me a, um, an example for Christmas or my birthday or something like that every year. So it was a, it was my entree into the business. I met, uh, a lot of the dealers and, and, uh, people that, uh, are everyday people for me now. I met them back then. They've known me a long time. Well, one of my goals in collecting the Colombian half dollars was always to get a Coco Bola. And I think that eventually I did get uh, a middling example of the 1887, which is the uh, the commoner date. Uh, but I, at the time, I didn't even realize that there was something uh, from 1888 with the, the same design. I, I had no idea. If I had known back then, I'm, I'm sure that I, I would never think that I would be selling one <laughs> today. Uh, but here's the reason why it is such a rare date. Uh, when it came out in 1887, um, the um, people really weren't paying too much attention that uh, to what was going on, and, and they didn't. I don't think they at first realized that uh, the the uh, the wife of the president had had been uh, had modeled uh, for the the coin design and ended up on on the coin. Um, and it was, I think, it was a little bit of a, a ruse. They were trying to uh, change the coinage and uh, and try to uh, obscure the fact that they were they were doing. Uh, 50% silver coins. They had dropped the, the fineness. Uh, so there was already a little uh, thievery going on there as it was. And, um, you know, it, eventually when it, the, the people started to figure out what, what had gone on, um, there was a, uh, an outcry and, and the coinage was stopped. But uh, the, a few coins were struck in 1888 before that happened. Now, the, the, the really interesting story actually is where it got its name. And if you ask anybody who's entered the business in the past few years or even past 20, 30 years, even if you'd asked me when I started collecting these coins where that name came from, I would have said, and they would say, well, Coco Bola, it's just uh, Coco means coconut. It's just uh, she had a coconut head. You know, it was an ugly portrait. And I think that you'll find a lot of people who agree with that today. But. We took the step to research this further because there was a small note in the uh, Restrepo book, which, again, is the, the standard reference for these coins. <coughs> Excuse me. And there was a note in there that Cocobola was actually named after a, uh, a known criminal at the time, Cocobolo, the masculine Cocobolo. Well, it was very difficult to find anything about Coco Bolo because, uh, you know, the way we research things today is we go to Google and we type in a, a word and boom, you get thousands of results. If you were to do that with the word Coco Bolo, you would find that it is a very popular hardwood that comes from mostly Central America. And just about everything you see is about uh, things made out of Coco Bolo wood. Uh, I think guitars and various instruments and then all kinds of tourist souvenirs and it's impossible, really, to, to find anything. But we, we kept at it because we knew that wasn't the answer. And uh, eventually we did find some history. And it links, in fact, to Panama. And this is where the U.S. history comes in because um, this was – Panama was basically um, – it was part of Colombia. You know, we're not used to thinking of, of Panama as being part of Colombia. But uh, from early days of the early days of, of Colombia, uh, Panama was was just another province, and uh, there was a, a revolution in the city of Colón in, in Panama by a Colombian general uh, against the president. Again, his, the president's wife is, was the one who was pictured on the coin um, because the president was was trying to um, 
get a more centralized nation. Uh, he, he definitely wanted to be uh, an autocrat. And, um, and in fact, he ended up, the president ended up uh, reneging on the Constitution that had been put together in 1863. So basically, there was a revolt against all that. And on the other side of it uh, was the U.S., um, whose interest was to, uh, of course, construct the canal, the Panama Canal, and, and was negotiating with uh, Colombia. Um, and what ended up happening is that this uh, general, this Colombian general who was uh, uh, in revolt, um, hired uh, two criminals. Well, we, we know that one was a, a criminal for sure. And they ended up burning down the city of Cologne. And the, uh, the, one of these criminals was named George Davis, and his uh, nickname was Coco Bolo. And uh, he was eventually uh, captured and, and hanged. Uh, but at that time, this is right around the exact same time um, or just before these coins were made, that name, Coco Bolo, kind of became a, uh, a catchphrase for anything that was disliked. And uh, uh, when they these coins came out and they were low fineness, uh, the, the people said, well, you know, that's a that portrait there. That's Coco Bola. And the name stuck. So. Uh, now, when we collect these coins today, it's very easy to rec- it's very easy to recognize a Coco Bola uh, bust on on the coin. It's not so easy to find the history, but it's easy to recognize it, and uh, um, you, you just would never see one with with a date eighteen eighty eight because it's it's that rare. Just just a few exist, and like I said, back in my childhood collecting days, I didn't even know it it existed at all. Very exciting coin. Um, could be a great opportunity, but uh, more likely it'll go for a lot of money, and we're excited to see that happen. It just goes to show you that many of these quote-unquote modern rarities are rare due to the governing malfeasance and misfeasance of their ruling class. But this is a great opportunity to score a tremendous rarity. I agree. I agree entirely. You have a beautiful gold finger bar. Uh, from the Atoksha in the sale. These are great opportunities to acquire metal in their transient state. That's what I always say. Uh, They were never intended to remain in this form for long, and they only survived because the ship never made it to port. Uh, In this case, I'm referring to Lot 56, a gold finger bar assayed at Sargosa. This item has been off the market, I believe, for more than 20 years. Yeah, we we typically have... Uh, one or two shipwreck gold bars in our auctions. It's, it's, we kind of make a point to do that because um, it, it's one of our signatures. You know, it's uh, it's one thing to sell coins, but it's another thing to sell ingots, and and uh, you you have to know a lot more about uh, the ingots themselves, how they were made, how the markings were made, and um, it's it's too much. If you look at it this way, coins are generally struck, ingots are cast, so. You kind of ingots automatically violate one of the rules that you use to authenticate coins just off the bat. Now, of course, the markings are stamped in, but uh, I've seen a lot of uh, cast ingots over the years that were fake that had markings stamped on them. So that that doesn't help you either. Uh, basically, what I'm saying is that you you have to know more about the the ingots themselves, and uh, it's just that's one of our areas of specialty. Uh, the gold ingots in particular are, are rare. You know, they, they really did not make a lot of them, and most of them did not survive because, as you say, they were a transient and temporary uh, means of transporting the, the uh, precious metal. 
Uh, but it's because of shipwrecks, like in this case, the Atocha, that uh, these things survived at all. And so there are a few known um, on the market, and uh, we we try to have, like I say, one or two in, in every auction. Uh, but what's nice about uh, this particular bar um, is that the it does have visible, uh, good visible um, markings on it, including the uh, what uh, we know to be the foundry and the assayer. Um, we call it the Sargar- Sargosa Picarta. That's uh, uh, Sargosa was a place, and I think Picarta was the name. Of, um, but it links it specifically to one place in, in Colombia. Uh, so it's kind of nice that uh, this this particular bar is is in this auction along with all of the uh, Colombian numismatic rarities. But as you said, also, um, this has a, uh, a classic uh, auction uh, provenance to it as well, much like that uh, Lima Gold Eight Escudos 1703 that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, 1988 uh, Christie's auction was, uh, and I think remains, the largest single auction of Atocha uh, artifacts, uh, both ingots and coins, as well as um, other uh, material like uh, plates and jewelry and things like that. Um, very important sale. It, it took place in 1988, right after the main fine. Uh, my understanding is that it was uh, a consortium of the various investors in, in Mel Fisher's operation that got together and, and had this major auction. And um, I don't remember the particulars, but somebody must have bought this this piece uh, back then and, and held on to it uh, all this time. And uh, now it's uh, up for somebody else to own it. And, uh, you know, what usually happens with these ingots is that uh, you start with a, a multiple or a factor of, of the intrinsic value. Um, not really fair because, you know, there are coins that are worth $35,000 that are a fraction of the weight of this piece. But, you know, nevertheless, you have to start somewhere. And uh, then you, you go two, three, four, five times the, the melt value, just whatever the market bears. And, um, um, you know, this piece at 35000 is actually, uh, that's quite a reasonable estimate. And uh, uh, once again, we expect to, to see some active bidding and, and uh, a nice number in the end. Some collectors should keep in mind, and, and I don't think we think these things through, but the collector who bought that, finger bar in 1988 held on to it longer than the amount of time from when it was cast to when the ship sank. Uh, these bars are a snapshot of the global metal trade and they were only meant to be in this form as they went from port to port and then were melted down again. Yeah, that goes for any of the shipwreck ingots that we sell. You know, I, I try to tell people all the time, look, these are these are rare, not just because there's a small population in existence, but they're rare because they shouldn't exist at all anymore. You know, it's it's like any other kind of, for lack of a better term, disposable thing that you can think of in, in our own lifetime. Um, you know, you think of maybe a, a classic car that was supposed to last a few years and, and then get, uh, you know, uh, destroyed or taken apart at a, um, you know, a, a junkyard. Uh, th- this is why we we collect these these things. This is the the heart of of why we collect these things, and uh, it's not like uh, coins so much where there is uh, you know a, a, a record keeping and, and these were things that were supposed to last and uh, you can collect varieties and so forth like that. Uh, with ingots, this is something where the main appeal is just the fact that it, it survived at all. And uh, you're right. I think we 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 tend to overlook that. And we tend to overlook the fact that, uh, um, you know, somebody has already owned this for, for longer than, uh, 
um, it was supposed to exist in the first place. And, um, you know, even more significant than that is uh, how much longer this is going to last from here. You know, this, like anything else that uh, that we sell in terms of coins and, and bully, related bullion, uh, these will all outlast us. These will continue to, to uh, go from collection to collection, um, you know, forever, basically. So it's, it's kind of exciting, though, to be just, you know, once removed from, um, you know, when when it actually was lost. And then you have to go all the way back to the 1600s to see when <laughs> uh, when it, it uh, moved at all. So uh, adds to the excitement. I agree about that. When it comes to ingots, Dan, do the same rules uh, to the way we handle coins and metals apply? Uh, what is the proper way exactly to handle an ingot? Well, you know what? Um, of course, it depends on whether we're talking about gold or silver or even copper. Um, you know, I guess I'll get into the conservation aspect of it. You have to think of it in terms of comparing with the coins of its time and, and of its nature and, and not modern coins. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these are shipwreck objects. So, um, you know, they and they were hand hand uh, crafted and can be crude. So you want to compare them more to other shipwreck cobs as opposed to uh, more modern coins. And that means that in the case of silver, you can expect or should expect some kind of conservation to, to have been done. Uh, it's quite rare for any, any cob at all to never have been cleaned or retoned or uh, have something happen to it. Uh, and then if it came from a shipwreck, it had to have been cleaned and, and retoned. When they uh, come up out of the ocean, they are black. The, the silver oxidizes in the ocean. Uh, so that uh, that's right off the bat. But uh, when it comes to gold, it's a little bit different of a situation because you don't have the, the oxidation. Instead, you might have copper impurities leaching out or you might have um, sometimes there's an organic uh, element, uh, whether it's coral or some kind of growth on the surface of the piece. So number one is is that there usually is some type of conservation, and you can't think of it in terms of a, a coin in, in the sense of, you know, well, I'm going to get it uh, slabbed by NGC or PCGS and hope for mint state grade. It's not going to qualify in that sense. But in the in another sense, they are exactly like coins, in that you want to look for the same things. You want to look for how well it was, how well the markings were, were placed on it, uh, and how well preserved it is in terms of, of those markings, how well they, they stand out and, and, uh, uh, whether they've been eroded or, or scratched off or were just weak to begin with. Um, and then just the, the overall shape and, uh, um, malleability of, of the piece. Um, not so much uh, malleability. I would I would say uh, you know just presentability and and uh, you know what size it is, what shape, and that kind of thing. Basically aesthetics, and that should go for for any kind of uh, coin or ingot or, or any kind of collectible. Really, it's it's a matter of beauty. And when you're talking about something early and hand done, handcrafted. Um, you know, it takes a lot of different uh, eyes to see a lot of different things, and, and each person will have his own opinion as to, to what is more beautiful than another. Uh, but when it comes to the ingots, the gold ingots in, in particular, they, they're almost always uh, very attractive and, uh, um, you know, uh, a good conversation piece, if nothing else. This, is, this piece is no exception. 
One more item I would like to talk about is an unlisted Colombian banknote. This is the Estado Sabareno de Bolivar 10 pesos note. Uh, this is an item that is so rare that it was not known when the standard catalogs were being produced. Uh, what is the story behind this note? Well, I, I'm going to confess uh, right off the bat, I will confess that um, Connor is the paper money guy that works for us, and uh, it is not my area of specialty. But that said, this is Colombian. It's part of the, the large offering of Colombian uh, material that we have. Uh, so it is it's important and definitely worth noting. Um, I think that any of the, the banknotes from uh, the, the republics the, in the 1800s and, uh, and earlier even, are fascinating because, you know, they, uh, it's not like money that we have now. They're generally different shapes and colors and, and a lot of different vignettes. It's, it's not the kind of simple, just paper money that you think of, of today. Um, but, uh, as you say, the, the main attraction to this one is that it's, it's just so rare and, and, uh, was not even, uh, it's not listed in the standard catalog yet and, and it's missing in most, uh, Colombian paper collections. Uh, even the El Dorado collection that was offered a few years ago, uh, quite famously, was was lacking this one. Um, you know, just a lot, if this and, and several others that we've had in this auction, they just they don't come up for for sale for for decades at a time, if if ever. Um, and also, one one thing I like about this is that it's it's right in that uh, that period, sort of like the uh, Coca Bola uh, uh, coin, uh, just before that, where. Um, Colombia was, was starting to have some real political problems and, uh, um, you know, financial problems and, uh, they were starting to devalue the, uh, the silver and the silver coins and so forth. Uh, uh, very important time, uh, in the, in the history of, of Colombia. And, um, you know, also just, like I said, a, a pretty piece with a, a, an attractive, uh, uh, vignette at the top shows a train above La Baremos. Um, just, um, a, a lot to like here, and uh, we're excited to, to see this one sell as well. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good luck with your sale today. Uh, wish your staff all the best from Coin Week. Oh, it was my pleasure as usual. Thank you. If you like this podcast, Please share it with your friends. And remember, you can download all 135 episodes, wow, of the CoinWeek podcast for free from the iTunes store. Stream them online at coinweek.com. For CoinWeek, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.